Hello, welcome to the next RevDem Future of Europe podcast. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska and I am an editor of the Review of Democracy. My, it is my pleasure to host today uh, Stefan Auer, who is an associate professor in European studies at the University of Hong Kong. His book, European Disunion, Democracy, Sovereignty and the Politics of Emergency, is to be published just tomorrow. So we are hoping to encourage you to read this book as it is now published. Welcome, Stefan Auer. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So we will just start to talk about this book and I will start our conversation with a quote. It was the very culture itself, he thought, the actual culture that had formed him and people like him that contained the seeds of its own destruction, wrote Colm Toybin in his most recent book, The Magician, on Thomas Mann, who was wondering about wartime Germany. And I think that a similar interpretation could be adapted to your perception of the European project. You wrote in your book that the EU became complicit in eroding democracy. And if you agree to this comparison with the one that Toybin provided, what kind of seeds of its own destruction has the EU harbored over decades? Thank you. The comparison is very flattering, but I think it might go too far. Uh, Thomas Mann confronted the German's descent to Nazism, Nazism, right? And I am skeptical about the project of European integration, but I do not think that the EU is experiencing problems of that magnitude. So however pessimistic I might be about EU's future, it's not, of, uh, not comparable to what Thomas Mann uh, reflected on. Uh, but the quote is relevant in, in two ways. Firstly, Thomas Mann is a fascinating figure. I'm yet to read the biography that you cited from, but I have always found uh, Thomas Mann intriguing because uh, intellectuals like Mann uh, contributed to the demise of Weimar Republic. So he was one of many incredibly profound German intellectuals who were actually skeptical, dismissive, scathing about democracy. They had contempt for politics. Think of that famous essay by Thomas Mann, uh, Die Betrachtungen eines unpolitischen, Reflections of a Non-Political Man, in which he rejects democratic politics. So in fact, you could say that Thomas Mann hated democracy and opposed it to culture, right? That was the distinction that he drew in that, in that essay. And uh, it is then funny that the same Thomas Mann, who in a way wrote the manifesto of the German, German Sonderweg, the German culture being superior to French and American and British civilizations that were democratic. So it's quite funny that the same Thomas Mann is now a patron saint of sorts, uh, you know, of, of that new democratic Germany in a new uh, democratic uh, Europe. And there is one quote that I uh, cite, of course, the famous dictum by Thomas Mann in, in the book, that after the Second World War, he said that in a lecture in 1953, the aim of post-war reconstruction must be to create a European Germany rather than a German Europe. So that is one of the key aims of European integration. But I also know that this aim, of course, uh, uh, has been kind of undermined over the last decade when, uh, uh, you know, a European Germany is increasingly leading uh, German uh, Europe. And that transformation is actually very important to the story of the book. And that brings me to the second aspect of the quote. And that is that this fictional Thomas Mann that, that Colin Toybin so beautifully describes uh, reflects on the culture that contained the seeds of its own destruction, as, as, you, as you quoted. Uh, and, and the culture that he com contemplates there is uh, mostly music, right? Wondering about what the music would sound like, and I quote, that led to the German catastrophe, right? And then Toybin uh, imagines uh, Thomas Mann uh, uh, saying that, uh, I quote, it would not be war music or marching music. It would not need drums. It could be sweeter than that, more sly and silky. What happened in Germany would need a music not only somber, but slippery and ambiguous with parody of seriousness. I really love that. And, and that made me think of a different quote of a different, enormously influential writer 
in the German-speaking world, I'm talking about uh, Robert Musil, an Austrian uh, writer, the, uh, the, the author of The Man uh, Without Qualities. And there is a beautiful passage in, in that novel about Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9 that, of course, is now the anthem uh, of, of the EU. But that music was actually uh, appropriated by a number of uh, political projects, including uh, uh, the Nazis, sadly, uh, uh, used that. Uh, music. So, so I have a quote uh, from The Man Without Qualities that I use in the book, and I, I read it if you don't mind. Uh, I quote, this time it was Beethoven's cheerful song to joy. Millions sang, as Nietzsche describes it, awestruck in the dust, hostile boundaries gone, the gospel of world harmony reconciled and brought together those who were separated. They forgot how to walk and talk and were about to fly off, dancing up into the air. So a beautiful depiction of that beautiful uh, musical composition, right? How does it relate to, to my story of the book, to the project of uh, European integration? I think what, what that description depicts is the kind of hubris that such uplifting music can inspire. So dancing up into the air is what the EU decided to do after uh, 1989, after the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe, when sky seemed to be the limit uh, to the ambition of the uh, uh, European integration, right? Uh, so uh, that is the danger uh, that I see uh, Europe is facing. And Germany in particular, I, I think, uh, uh, I argue in the book uh, uh, in Germany, uh, the wrong lessons from, from its own history uh, were learned. Uh, many German intellectuals and political leaders made themselves believe that they somehow managed to move beyond traditional categories of, of politics. So my book is also kind of the defense of source of those traditional categories. National sovereignty, power, even or especially military power were considered obsolete. They are not, I argue. We do not live in a post-national, post-sovereign paradise in which all conflicts can be solved by conversation. So trying to construct an apolitical Europe does not remove conflicts from the world but rather might disempower Europe from addressing such conflicts when they arise. And arise, they, they will. They always will. Just think of Russian aggression against Ukraine, of course, right now. Uh, but think also of the EU's decade of crisis before then, which is uh, the story of my book. The Eurozone crisis, the refugee crisis, COVID-19 crisis, the crisis of EU-Russia relations that can be traced back to uh, uh, the invasion of Crimea. All these challenges created a distinctly, uh, created distinctly political conflicts, which cannot be wished away. And that takes me to, to one of the key categories that is important for, for my story, for, for the book. And that category is sovereignty that has so often been declared uh, obsolete, right? And I think that in good times, it is fairly easy to say that sovereignty uh, doesn't uh, matter. In difficult times, the question about who decides, the, the political question of who decides becomes inescapable. And this is how sovereignty was famously described by Carl Schmitt, another conservative thinker who didn't become a Democrat like Thomas Mann, who uh, remained faithful to the Nazi cause. Uh, uh, Carl Schmitt defined uh, a sovereign as the one who decides on the exception. And uh, I, I deplore Carl Schmitt as any sensible uh, uh, liberal uh, would, but I think he has tremendous insight into the problems that modern politics faces, democratic politics too, and, and that definition of sovereignty I find compelling. And that definition is relevant in two ways. Firstly, the sovereign decides what constitutes the exception. You know, is the Eurozone crisis an exceptional challenge or, or the COVID-19 crisis or the relationship that Europe has now with Ukraine and Russia? An exceptional challenge. So that is for the sovereign to decide. And also how to deal with that exception is for the sovereign to decide. And there the EU is in a strange position in that clearly the EU doesn't have that kind of executive in one uh, institution, but that doesn't get rid, doesn't, doesn't remove the challenge uh, that this description of uh, sovereignty uh, captures, it, it actually makes it worse because the institutions that were not designed to deal with that kind of challenge suddenly assume uh, the kind of role. So during the Eurozone crisis, of course, it was the European Central Bank and its 
then President Mario Draghi, who made the sovereign decision as to how to deal with that crisis. And I think that is profoundly erosive of democracy in Europe. There are many different topics that you mentioned in your um, in your speech now. We will come back to them uh, in the later stage of our conversation. And now I wanted to ask you about the direction of the uh, EU development. So in light of your argumentation about the EU disintegration, would you say that the two visions of Europe, the most common visions, so the community of sovereign states envisioned by Robert Schuman and a federalist Europe endorsed by Atelier Spinelli, are still two competing visions of the EU development or perhaps there are different competing proposals on the direction, on the future direction of the EU. To be honest, I'm not quite sure about this dichotomy because of course there are federalist ambitions contained even in the Schuman Declaration, which is considered like the foundational document of the EU that we now have. But I do believe, and I argue that in the book, that the EU worked fairly well in the first few decades after the Second World War, when these uh, uh, federalist ambitions were moderated by the kind of pragmatic understanding that the nation states, that the member states and their sovereignty uh, still mattered. So uh, uh, the story I try to kind of uh, depict in the book is, is, is that tension between these two visions and that when they were kept in check, uh, that it, 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 it worked fairly well. I mean, this is what Alan Millward uh, uh, described as the European rescue of the nation state, right? In the first couple of decades uh, uh, after the end of the Second World War. And of course, the defining conflict between these two visions uh, can be kind of personalized because we have Walter Hallstein, the first president of the European Commission on the one hand, a German legal scholar, professor, right? Uh, who advocated and worked towards a United States of Europe uh, and uniting Europe through law, etc. And then opposed to him was uh, uh, most famously, most prominently, of course, the French president, uh, Charles de Gaulle, who, who, whose vision uh, was in favor of, of a Europe of nation states. And that story is kind of interesting because uh, Walter Hallstein also suffered a bit of that hubris. He believed that he was on the right side of history, right? That, that, that kind of resistance that the likes of Charles de Gaulle represented could be pushed away because the logic of history dictated that we are uh, marching towards ever bigger political entities and a quasi-federation. Uh, and, and, and that hubris actually led to a massive setback on, on his part because Charles de Gaulle actually, uh, uh, his opposition resulted to a significant adjustment. Uh, usually textbook wisdom of that story is that it was a setback uh, to the process of European integration. In my view, it was a pragmatic adjustment that, that, that really made that Europe in the first couple of decades of integration work uh, fairly well. So now we can talk more about uh, the sovereignty in the EU, as you mentioned already. Uh, it's one of the most uh, important concepts in your book. Uh, but it was also ousted by the emergency politics uh, that the EU deployed somehow in, in the recent decades by uh, the depoliticized rules and so-called famous governance. And you argue that this sovereignty is still a concept that we should not reject, but apply to the nation state uh, with bounded, stable and viable communities. And here we will refer to Hannah Arendt and her conception of the political community uh, with uh, common values. And could you elaborate a bit more why the concept of sovereignty is so vital today and why you believe that we are not living in a post-sovereign era? And uh, a question connected to that, where do you envision the limits of the self-governance of the EU member state? Thank you. So we, we don't live in a post-sovereign era, and I don't want us to live in a post-sovereign era because a post-sovereign era would be a post-political era, and, and that would not be democratic. Right? That takes me back, actually, to Thomas Mann that you kindly started with, because the reflections of a non-political man or an apolitical man is what I see as a very... That, that approach, that mindset, uh, is something that I see as a very potent danger to democracy, 
in Europe, and that danger is a danger of depoliticization, depoliticization. And, and that danger of depoliticization was uh, understood uh, not just by Carl Schmitt, whose views were otherwise despicable, as we established, but also by Max Weber and uh, Hannah Arendt, whom you cited. So I, I take Hannah Arendt uh, as a guide on my uh, journey, perhaps more uh, than uh, Carl Schmitt. And I believe that what Europe needs is to reclaim what these German scholars called uh, das Politische, the political, right? The understanding that the politicization is not the answer to uh, our problems. And so uh, what I see the EU suffering or, or German EU, if you want, uh, is from uh, that uh, it kind of oscillates between the kind of non-political approach, the rule of rules, right? The rule is the rule and, and you in Greece have to comply with it to adjust to the problems that the single European currency created, whatever the cost, so to speak, right? The rule of rules, which is corrosive of democracy. Uh, uh, and, and that is then uh, 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 coupled uh, with the politics of emergency, or we see the kind of oscillation, the rhetoric of the politics of emergency and, and the rule of rules. Uh, I, I draw on, on Jonathan White's uh, pioneering work on emergency uh, Europe, right? Where he, he, he shows how in response to any number of these challenges, you no longer have normal or democratic political process, normal, I should say democratic political process, uh, but the politics of emergency. And as I said, in the case of the EU, when we don't even have a proper executive power, right? It's not the commission, it's not the European parliament. Uh, we have then non-majoritarian institutions like the European Central Bank playing the role uh, that is uh, profoundly political. It's uh, the European Central Bank as the part of the so-called Troika together with the European Commission and the International Monetary Fund, they dictated to the Greek government uh, what was to be done, right? To, to restore uh, or, or to revive uh, Greek economy against the explicit wishes of the uh, Greek people or democratically elected uh, Greek government. So that I see uh, uh, deeply problematic. And the Eurozone is an important part of that story because this is actually the practical manifestation of that hubristic belief that I think uh, dictated the policies after 1989 in Europe that you can move away uh, from uh, the age of nation states and you can create a quasi-federation that would share one single European currency, right? Uh, the Eurozone crisis would not have existed if that project was not uh, uh, pursued. And I, I think that project was, was foolish because it obviously created uh, uh, the crisis that, uh, that is still not over, right? The crisis caused by the fact that the monetary policies that are determined by the European Central Bank are, are not aligned with the fiscal policies that remain in the control of the uh, nation states. So this post-national Europe uh, that the euro uh, represents uh, uh, has created actually political animosities that were uh, no longer there. So whatever happens with the Eurozone over the years to come, I think that the project as such failed because it did not deliver on its stated political aims, which was to strengthen uh, the unity of Europe. It resulted in increasing hostility between uh, the creditor and the debtor states, and these hostilities are still there. And with the deteriorating economic situation that is going to be uh, caused also by the rising energy prices, etc., I'm afraid that the Eurozone uh, crisis might, might come back to, to haunt us. Thank you for this bleak elaboration on, on the Eurozone crisis. And when I was wondering about the sovereignty in the EU, I just uh, thought about the concept of subsidiarity. Just some time ago, Carlo Invernizzi Acetti published a monograph on the history of Christian democracy in Europe. And he argued, that one of the fundamental principles of the EU, and also a basis for much of the uh, Court of Justice of the EU jurisprudence, is exactly subsidiarity, a concept that was originally a Christian democratic concept, or indeed, as Acetti stated in his um, Revden podcast, 
as he said, the Catholic counter-concept to the modern notion of state sovereignty. And in his view, subsidiarity means that power is not concentrated in one place, but dispersed at different levels. And even though I did not notice that you are discussing in your book this concept of, of subsidiarity, I would like to ask you whether you believe that this concept uh, can be a remedy to the concentration of power on the EU level and the technocratic or emergency politics that you so much criticize. Well, subsidiarity is a great idea, but it has not quite delivered for Europe, in, in my opinion. So no, I don't think it offers a remedy. I mean, when you say it's a, it's, a, it's a Catholic concept, so maybe it works for the Catholic Church or it has worked for the Catholic Church, but uh, for uh, the political project that the EU represents, uh, its, uh, its potential was always limited. Uh, because to the extent that the project became ever more uh, federalist and driven by federalist narratives, uh, the, the logical uh, result uh, has been that some of the key institutions became ever more powerful, right? That's the story of the European Parliament that is meant to strengthen democratic credentials of the EU, but it has its own problems because the European Parliament does not represent or attempts to represent something that does not yet exist, that is demos, and I don't know whether it can ever exist. It's the story of the continuous empowerment of the uh, European Commission, which is the quasi-government of the EU. But as I mentioned just before, where it gets even more problematic is that you have non-majoritarian institutions self-empowering themselves, like the uh, European Central Bank I just mentioned, and arguably even the European Court of Justice, which became de facto the engine of European integration. So when we have uh, this self-empowerment or empowerment of institutions that have in their tendency, uh, uh, that, that they have centralizing impetus in their tendency, then it is hard to see how uh, the principle of subsidiarity can counteract uh, uh, because and the center has ever more power. It's not going to voluntarily give up uh, on, on that power. So I find the concept of sovereignty more helpful in this context because it is, uh, uh, especially if you think of sovereignty as, as the question, uh, as the answer to the question of who decides on the exception, uh, then I, I think uh, that sharpens our, our view on, on these profoundly political uh, challenges about who decides and who has the power to decide and who takes on uh, the power to decide, which the concept of, of, of subsidiarity in my view, doesn't doesn't give us. Yeah, sure. There is no discussion about the the one source of power, so perhaps it's not so much but, fitted. I mean, if I may, I, I would yeah. just add that the, the that the eurozone crisis is a is a marvelous illustration of the limits of the concept of subsidiarity. Because once the single European currency became a, 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 a reality, it became a part of, of the European polity, right? Then uh, th there is no question that, that uh, the constitutive units, the nation states, the member states that uh, were co-opted into uh, the single European uh, currency. And, and of course, it's only uh, Denmark and, and the United Kingdom that had the opt-out uh, uh, option, right? Not to be co-opted. So even countries that are not yet in the Eurozone are at least technically meant to become, including Poland, say, uh, but so once this was in place, the, there is no question that they lost control over important instruments of economic uh, policies. So no amount of talk about subsidiarity is going to overcome that obstacle. Only uh, uh, the resort to an exceptional measure in the times of emergency can uh, uh, reclaim that power, as, as Varoufakis famously tried in the case of Greece by taking uh, Greece out of the Eurozone. And if he had done that, then, uh, you know, that power would have been reclaimed. But no amount of talk about subsidiarity is going to reclaim uh, that kind of power that the very creation of the single European currency uh, kind of removed 
from uh, member states. Let us talk about other crises that have been developed uh, inside the EU. Uh, in your reading of the rule of law crisis in Poland, this predicament of the crisis is not only legal, but also political. Your concern in the book is not the question how, but why? What are the basis for the EU action or rather inaction uh, or interver interver intervention in the um, member states' issues? Your argumentation seems to favor more restraint of the EU institutions in the name of the democratic representation and popular legitimacy that only the state enjoys. Could you say a bit more on your argumentation why the conflict resolution should not be taken to the European level? And what would be your suggestion to the people concerned about the irregularities in the legal system and uncertainty that this system produces? Well, here again, my, my approach is kind of linked to, the, linked to the overall argument of the book. I don't think that we have a European democracy, right? And of course, there are some people like Jürgen Habermas who would say we are marching into that direction. Uh, I'm skeptical about it. We don't yet have a demos and I don't think we will ever have a European demos and I don't necessarily think that it is even uh, desirable, right? And so, as I see, democracy anchored primarily at national level, supported by a political community within individual member states, I believe that solutions to the rule of law crisis must come primarily from within these uh, member states. So I'm not saying that the EU should play no role. Of course, there is a role to play for the EU. But I, I'm convinced that the challenge is primarily uh, uh, to be addressed at that uh, nation state level, member state level. Uh, and I'm inspired there by, by uh, a great scholar of the rule of law and, and a dear friend, Martin Krieger, whom we also interviewed on this uh, series. And, and he said that uh, the rule of law is simply too important to be left just to the lawyers, right? Uh, and, I, and I think that captures the, the problem. It's not just a legal problem. And, and look at what the EU does about it. I mean, it is a kind of technocratic institution that by its very nature then resorts to turning every political problem into some kind of technical legal problem. And this is what's happening now, right? So that a profoundly political challenge that the EU faces with the kind of democratic backsliding that is occurring in Poland, in Hungary, is then uh, dealt with by the decisions of the a European Court of Justice, but then what we have is not the improvement of the rule of law either at national or EU level, because at the EU level, what, what situation do we end up with? Is, is the situation whereby the legitimacy of both courts is, is damaged, because you have one court uh, uh, denying the legitimacy to the other court. So from the perspective of a citizen in Poland or in Hungary, who is uh, to be trusted, right? Uh, so it is the erosion of rule of law, not just in Poland, but uh, uh, EU-wide. The, the, the irony is that the rule of law crisis is actually then transformed into the crisis of European uh, constitutionalism. The, Poland, the, the, the challenge now that the Polish tribunal uh, created is the challenge for uh, uh, European EU EU. Uh, constitutionalism. So I am I'm convinced that the solution can only occur from within that political community that legitimizes democracy in uh, Poland. The challenge is primarily uh, political. And, and so when you look at what is actually happening, both in Poland and in Hungary, I mean, Hungary is actually probably even a more instructive case in terms of a political leader actually taking advantage of the fact that the EU is not that well suited to address these problems because Orban, Viktor Orban has managed to present himself as the savior of, of the Hungarian nation, even Hungarian democracy, though illiberal democracy in his own uh, uh, terminology, right? So because theirs is a nationalist project, the kind of outside pressure that Hungary and Poland face uh, works to their advantage. I believe that my Polish friends, liberals, 
like Wojciech Sadurski say, uh, have the challenge, have to win that challenge primarily at the domestic uh, level. They need to co-opt ever more poles uh, 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 so that they oppose the government that has eroded uh, the independence of Polish uh, judiciary or has uh, uh, eroded the, the freedom uh, of the press, etc. Et, et I, I think the EU must play a role because obviously all these countries are a part of this legal uh, structure that the EU has constructed, but to rely exclusively uh, on the EU is foolhardy. It's not going to work uh, politically and it's not going to restore democracy in Poland. It's not going to strengthen the democratic legitimacy of the EU as a whole. Your argument that you now presented seems to be a rather dissenting one in the whole voice of the European voices about the rule of law crisis in Poland. And there is precisely the issue that I wanted to ask you about, about the dissent, about the um, interpretation of the crisis, another crisis. Um, because it seems that the interpretation of the EU reaction towards the pandemic differs significantly. A group of EU scholars defends the EU response with its more fierce advocate in person of Luke van Middelaar, who wrote in his book Pandemonium that we all know that the pandemic crisis was a transition towards in time toward a new chosen future, as he uses this language. Another passage towards closer integration by issuing eurobonds and even transforming the EU into a serious geopolitical actor. However, for you and some other EU academics, the pandemic crisis exposed serious and persistent weakness of the EU, as we talked about it. It's an ability to protect citizens in a way that the nation state could. So how could you explain this kind of total, totally different views on the same, very same facts of the pandemic crisis? Thank you. I, I find your labeling me as a dissenting voice flattering, to be perfectly honest. I think the EU and EU studies need uh, uh, more dissenting uh, voices. There is a kind of dysfunction within EU studies. You know, I, I myself benefited twice from Jean Monnet's uh, scheme, but I'm not going to uh, sing praises of uh, uh, the European Union. It's not even the aim. Uh, of that scheme, but but uh, scholars drawn to the study of European un Union uh, tend to be uh, tend to be positive about its aims. I uh, want to maintain more distance. It might even help that I am uh, uh, for the last few years I have been observing uh, Europe from uh, the distance of Hong Kong. And you are asking about pandemic, and there my location is relevant because. I, I have to say that particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, in the first year, uh, the experience that Hong Kongers have made uh, was uh, much more positive than what I saw happening in Europe, across, across Europe. I, I think a lot of suffering could have been prevented through better decisions taken in the uh, uh, time of an emergency like that. and and. The decisions could have been taken if there was a sovereign power uh, to take those decisions, either at national or EU level. I, I think that what uh, was done uh, took too long. Uh, it was too slow, and and uh, many people uh, suffered uh, the consequences. So, with all uh, due respect, I, I think Luke von Middler is a brilliant writer, but on on that uh, we disagree. He. Uh, uh, restates the key proposition in a compelling way, but I, I just disagree with it, that uh, time and again, we have seen uh, uh, crises, uh, the, the, you know, integration through crisis, that, that the crisis presents a new opportunity for Europeans to realize uh, what, what uh, unites them and, and to push the project uh, further uh, ahead. Uh, and, and I am, I am uh, deeply skeptical about it and 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 for a, a number of reasons uh, that is uh, uh, what what the crisis uh, produced yes is that massive fund and and the ability for the eu uh, to borrow money uh, but but it also increased actually uh, the the significant uh, discrepancies between uh, europe's center and its peripheries so germany again uh, incredibly 
uh, had, had a, a fairly good pandemic also in terms of economic uh, impact while uh, countries uh, like Italy uh, are, are still uh, struggling uh, with the consequences. I'm not quite, uh, I don't share the confidence that, that my colleagues have uh, that this is over uh, yet, right? So I acknowledge, I acknowledge that steps were uh, taken into the, the direction of, of ever closer union. The, the ability for the EU uh, to borrow money is a significant step. I don't think it's a Hamiltonian moment as Olaf Scholz, the former finance minister of Germany, uh, described it. Now uh, uh, the chancellor of, of Germany, I don't think it's a Hamiltonian moment. And I, I don't want it to be a Hamiltonian moment because I remain doubtful that it is possible and desirable to create a Europe-wide uh, democracy, so to speak, that would supersede the nation states. Pandemic, uh -huh. I actually believe that smaller units uh, proved that you can manage it uh, uh, more effectively. So in my part of the world, when you look at Singapore, when you look at South Korea, when you look at uh, Taiwan, until recently, I would uh, uh, argue Hong Kong too, let us come back to the EU and the ongoing crisis uh, or the war with Russia, uh, Ukraine with Russia. There was one thing in your book on which I have reflected previously in a similar way. It was the comparison to Proporcion Gardis between the Weimar Germany and contemporary Russia, when both countries experienced humiliation after the war or after the dissolution of an empire and are struggling with economic sanctions. You mentioned that Karl Schmidt is now back both as an actor and as an observer, as a theorist of Germany's Weimar Republic, and as an inspiration for Russian propagandists like Alexander Dugin, which was very surprising for me to read. Could you elaborate a bit more on this comparison and why it could actually tell us, what it actually tell us about the future of the EU relations with Russia? And what should we be wary of? Carl Schmidt is very much the ghost hanging over my book. But Carl Schmidt is also the ghost that hangs over the future of, of Europe. Absolutely. And, and I urge everyone to read Carl uh, Schmidt, not to agree with him, to disagree with him, but in a way that is productive in, in strengthening our belief in uh, liberal democracy. We need to engage with one of the most profound critics of liberal democracy to, to deal with the weaknesses of liberal democracy. And, and Carl Schmidt was one of those thinkers. But in relation to Russia, there are at least two aspects uh, that are relevant. And one is geopolitics, right? So while Russia uh, uh, remains uh, this old fashioned kind of 19th century style empire, uh, kind of very traditional in that sense, very postmodern in the way in which until recently it pursues, it pursued its interest with this kind of non-conventional war. And now even that, uh, uh, they moved beyond that, of course, uh, the war uh, that Russia now uh, leads against uh, Ukraine is uh, depressingly uh, traditional, this the war of aggression, etc. Et so, so to understand Russia's mindset, if you want, or, or Putin's Russia's mindset, it is useful. Uh, to, to, to study like Karl Schmitt's uh, uh, geopolitics. But I believe that the EU itself also needs to think about uh, geopolitics. So the EU elites, particularly in Germany, but across Europe, uh, came to believe that their project proved that the age of nation states uh, was over. And that geopolitics was a thing of the past, right? We moved beyond that. But that could only be true if there were no other countries like Russia or China, in fact, that's still very much thing of the world in these geopolitical terms. And so Ukraine actually is a tragic case. And I discuss it in my book uh, in a chapter that was written before the outbreak of this horrible war and reflect on it shortly in kind of author's not uh, at, at, at the end, uh, that the tragedy of Ukraine is that it is kind of caught between uh, these two worlds. The EU is a geopolitical actor, whether it wants it or not. So to be in denial about this kind of geopolitical reach 
is 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 crazy and 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 uh, was well proves hugely damaging uh, to Ukraine because the EU has always been a strong enough source of attraction for Ukraine to motivate uh, their fight for democracy for independence etc. So in that way it, it was strong, but it was never strong enough to support uh, Ukrainians against uh, Russia, right? And and we have a similar uh, relation uh, then with uh, Belarus. So the EU too needs to become more aware of its uh, geopolitical power. And there I find it quite amusing to some extent uh, because I have been making this argument for the last 10 years and, and uh, within the EU now, uh, uh, the the uh, quasi foreign minister of the EU Borrell right uh, makes that argument that we need to be a more geopolitical uh, power. But there I still see the discrepancy between the ambition, uh, the EU's ambition and its capability. So the ambition is while well, Ukraine is a part of Europe and all that. But what do you do? Uh, uh, you know, as the EU Commission or as the EU, the totality of member states uh, uh, in relation to that. Uh, claim not much, uh, I'm afraid, right? So that that aspect of Schmidt's thinking is hugely uh, relevant, and and I, I would just have to uh, say there is much more in the book than I am able to articulate now. There is more nuance to it and critical distance from Schmidt, but is hugely interesting and and important for uh, our thinking about uh, that conflict. But there is another aspect that is also relevant both to Russia and and uh, the EU. Russia's problem is the one of, of Weimar Republic, a kind of hyper-politicization, right? And, and the response uh, of West European elites after the Second World War was a sensible one, a natural one, uh, to kind of uh, to, to move towards depoliticization, depoliticization as a response to that the hyper-politicization uh, that Thomas Mann found so disgusting and, and, and whatnot. You know, also the technocratic governance is a natural uh, response to it. But this will not do. You cannot have a technocratic democracy, you know? So you need to embrace the political, which is another aspect of Schmidt uh, that is uh, yeah, important and relevant, both to contemporary Russia in ways very different from uh, 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 its kind of applicability to contemporary EU. But uh, the, the, Karl Schmidt was also a very astute uh, critic of uh, the tendency in modern societies, also in modern democracies, to depoliticize. And, and I think we need to take that criticism uh, seriously. So I urge my readers to think with Carl Schmidt against Carl Schmidt. The book is very Schmittian, to be honest. It's actually, yeah, it, to, to put it very crudely, it's, you know, Schmittian take on, on uh, the EU and its contemporary problems in defiance of the prevalent orthodoxy, which is very Habermasian. And, and I believe that, that the way in which the EU is confronted even with more serious and deadly and, and, and really existentialist conflicts, uh, this Habermasian view, as sophisticated as it is, it's, it's just obsolete. And that takes me back to Thomas Mann, whom you cited, and, and the fascination, or, or, or I've always been intrigued uh, by the fact that some of the brightest uh, intellectuals just reach profoundly misguided uh, judgments about politics. Thomas Mann in his early writings, Carl Schmitt, And I'm afraid to say that the magnitude is different and the story is way more nuanced. And I might regret saying this, uh, but Jürgen Habermas too is just misjudging the uh, nature of political conflicts that the EU and Germany are facing. Actually, this book by Colm Toybin stresses that Thomas Mann was very casual in his viewpoints. Uh, he just said whatever was uh, said to him. He had no political views of, on himself. He was just a rival to his brother who had very strong viewpoints, who was very socialist. But Thomas Mann was just neutral. He just uh, didn't know what to choose and uh, he changed his mind as the wind changed. 
So, so he was a non-political man exactly. in, in that respect. Yeah. And he remained a non-political man, but prudent enough to move into the direction which allowed him to restore his uh, credentials. There is another brilliant writer I didn't mention, and that is Martin Heidegger, of course, who was of great importance to Hannah Arendt. And there is a beautiful little essay by Richard Rorty where he imagines Martin Heidegger leaving Germany with his young lover for America. And then he would become the equivalent of uh, Thomas Mann, the leader of anti-Nazi opposition outside of, of uh, uh, Germany. That didn't happen, of course. But uh, Hannah Arendt is, is brilliant in that she takes the kind of existentialist challenges that Heidegger articulates in such a compelling way, right? Or Carl Schmitt. Uh, but turns them into a, a kind of political agenda that, that I uh, strongly support. And that is uh, the defense of liberty, right? And, and, and the defense of liberty against the threat of both depoliticization or the kind of hyper-politicization that the totalitarian regimes in the first half of the 20th century uh, represented to, to Europe. And I mean, with the rise of more assertive uh, Putin's Russia, that thinking is unfortunately more relevant than ever. And non-political and apolitical approach to Russia is not going to save us. Though this conversation is really pleasant, we have to slowly wrap up. So I will just ask you my last question and that regards your conclusions that you mentioned in your book. Um, so I would like to discuss them a bit further. You mentioned uh, in the end of your book that the war in Ukraine challenges the very basic EU idea that the right makes might and that we can universalize post-World War, sec the, the Second World War experience to Russia, which uh, very much endorsed, which is very much endorsed by Germany, just to mention projects like uh, Nord Stream Second. Do you believe that this war will pose a challenge to the German leadership? Uh, because, for example, last week, uh, last week's witnessed Chancellor Scholz indecisiveness over sending weapons to Ukraine, and he was publicly bashed for, for his indecision. So would you perceive this situation as a significant crisis for German Europe? Absolutely. I mean, currently it is hard to see how Germany or even France and Germany could reclaim the kind of leadership a position that was undoubtedly there until until uh, very recently, and 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 it is the result of this apolitical, non-political attitude amongst German elites and the reluctance to think about Germany's and Europe's interests. So there is no such a thing as a strategic culture in Germany. And now, when questions of war and peace are uh, debated, then they are uh, at a loss as to uh, 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 what to do about it. And then I, I, I find it kind of interesting. We just talked about Jürgen Habermas, and of course, he, 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 he just a couple of days ago published an essay in which he restates his belief that ultimately it is through negotiations uh, uh, that peace can be uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, protected or safeguarded or, 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 or whatnot. And, and I'm profoundly skeptical about that view. And that takes me to that, that quote that you, you kindly uh, uh, use, because I, I, I discuss it in the book, uh, right uh, makes might rather than might makes right, right? This is, of course, what underpins the EU. And it is a noble ideal that I trace back to Kelsen, uh, Hans Kelsen, the counterpoint, uh, the counter. Uh, uh, part to, to, to Carl Schmitt. Uh, and I don't want to belittle uh, that ideal, but it is seriously challenged uh, by uh, Putin's Russia. And I draw on, on a short essay that Ivan Krastev uh, wrote about the war, uh, where he says rightly, in my view, that uh, the concept of interdependence worked very well uh, within uh, the EU, right? It is what underpins the success of European unity. Uh, the problem is that Europeans then, uh, particularly Germans, believe that it could be easily 
exported, so to speak, in relation to the outside uh, powers, outside countries outside uh, of the EU, whether it be Russia or China. And that is clearly not the case. So what we are seeing now is the fallacy of this belief, Wandel durch Handel, right? Uh, uh, that is that you can transform countries you trade with. You can't. In fact, what you end up doing is you empower Putin's Russia. If, if Germany and, and Europe has confronted Russia after the invasion of Crimea the way that it's been confronted now, we would not have had this horrible war because Russia would not have had the money to modernize its uh, military, right? Uh, so, so this idea that interdependence provides you answer to provides answers to all problems that the world has is deeply apolitical, profoundly misguided, and incredibly dangerous uh, to places like like uh, Ukraine. So Europe needs to rediscover, reclaim the political. Europe needs to rediscover and reclaim its kind of geopolitical uh, purpose. And Europe needs to come to terms with the world uh, uh, that uh, presents to its own project uh, very dangerous, very real uh, enemies, right? Like Putin's Russia. And we didn't talk about Xi Jinping's China. Uh, but that is there uh, too, of course. And on this call for action, we will end. So thank you very much, Stefan. It was a real pleasure to listen to you. Thank you. Thanks for your kind invitation. Thanks for uh, your close reading of, of my book. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you very much. And up until the next episode. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.